Welcome to the Higher Learning Podcast with me, Oz Rashid. Our podcast focuses on the one thing every business leader must excel at when building a high-performance team, effective hiring. Identifying high performers that fit your team is not just an HR responsibility. It impacts every area of the business and all hiring leaders in your company. We're here to have an honest and entertaining conversation with different business leaders from a variety of industries to learn about new ways of identifying and engaging top talent in today's business environment. I'm your host, Oz Rashid. Welcome to another episode of Higher Learning. I am your host, Oz Rashid. Today, we have a very special guest. We have Paul Martino, co-founder and chief growth officer at Village MD. Paul, how are you doing today? Fantastic. How about you? I'm great, Paul. I've been looking forward to this. You are a hell of a conversator, so I'm excited to learn a little bit more about you and get into it. Let's start here. When we were talking in our pre-call, I want to get into your career journey. I want to learn about what brought you to Village MD. I want to know how you co-founded it. I'm really excited about all that stuff, but I want to talk a little bit more about one of your more literal journeys. You were telling me yeah. that you took a trip with your kids to Iceland recently. Now, I got to tell you, I'm always looking for ideas on where to take my kids. I got four of them. I want to know what stood out about this trip in particular, why this is one that really was memorable. A few things made it memorable. And I'll start with one of my kids. I have three children in total, 20, 17, 15. Okay. I had the 17 and 15 year olds with me, girl, boy. And at about two thirds, three quarters of the way through the trip, my youngest son, 15 year old William said to me, dad, have you noticed how much I've been off my phone this week? And so to me, Iceland is a land that time forgot. It's just this mystical place. When you get there, the people are friendly. The food is exquisite. The thing I think that really jumped out at me most about it was we did some really fun stuff. We went to a waterfall that was on a black sand beach Ooh. and the guide said, be really careful not to get too close to the water because every once in a while, a bigger wave will crash up. And if it drags you out, there's no getting you back. Oh man. We did a helicopter ride. We saw these ice caves. And I was thinking as I was around these ice caves, if a guide decided that they didn't like us for any reason, you're done. Wherever you are, you've got no chance of getting out of there. Amazing. So it was an action-packed, fun-filled vacation. A lot of no phone time, a lot of playing games. We stayed at a place that had a game room. And so we were playing darts and we were playing pool and we were singing and dancing to music. To me, it's what every parent should dream that their kids want to do with them. So I highly recommend it. Get it on your list. I got to tell you, if you're a guide or a tour guide, the threat of imminent death, right, will cause people to be super polite and probably tip pretty That's well. That's right. They really got something going there. I love that. Again, I have young children, 11, 9, and 8 in particular. They have their own iPad. One of them has their own phone. So anything I can do to remove them from that screen is really good. So maybe I'm going to have to book a trip to Iceland very soon. I want to ask you, obviously, parenting is a big part of who you are. It usually is with any parent. We're going to talk about hiring philosophy because that's what this pod's about. But I want to know about parenting philosophy. Do you have any advice you can share with us in terms of you have kids at a very formative age that have really kind of guided you throughout this process? There's two ways I think about it. First, be honest with your kids. Whatever's on your mind, if you're irritated with them, if you're having a bad day at work, if, you know, the stuff's just not going right, tell them that. And then my advice to my kids from when they were really little, and I'm divorced, so these are not my kids with my current wife. So there's a whole set of complexities that go with that. Sure. And what I said to my kids is there's only three things that I'm going to teach you as your father. And really, I think any parent, and those three things are really simple. Be respectful to adults, be honest, and always do your best. 
If you can just do those three things, I'm not going to be a great math teacher for you. I'm probably only going to be a mediocre one and probably the same with geography and all that other stuff too. But if you can stick to those three principles, we have half a chance of making you and us have a good life and you becoming a productive adult. I love that. I'm going to write that down. And since we're sharing here, I'm going to share one of my parenting philosophies and something that's really, I think, helped me throughout this. So this journey that I've been on for 11 years with four children now. One of the things that I've always tried to do is I've always tried to make it much like you do with a company and a culture, somewhat tribal, right? That we're a group, that there's unity there and there's sacrifice that comes with that. And so everything that we do as a family is around being part of the Rashid family. We are the Rashid family. Your name is important because it's my name. We're all in this together. And when they come and they say, and these are our guiding principles, right? We're not overly religious. It's not really about law for us. It's really about we know what right and wrong is and that that is our standard and that's what our family lives by. And so even if Jimmy down the street is doing something differently or your friend has this and you don't, that doesn't matter because we're Rashid. And sometimes I even tell my kids, do you want to go be a Smith? You can go be a Smith. But if you want to be Rashid, right. this is what we do here. And those are the <laughs> guiding it. principles that I think forms a real unity and a real clan. And so like we even had t-shirts, man, I mean, they're really cheesy, proud to be Rashid's, things like that. But you're trying to create a tribe because quite frankly, that's what you have with your family. And if you can count on each other and be connected and have this idea of what good looks like, I think that can be a really powerful thing. So what do you think about that? I tend to agree with that. And by the way, I don't think it's limited to your family. I think it extends to the workplace. We're going to get here and I'm kind of jumping the gun. But when I thought about Village MD, when we thought about culture, just to be candid, we had a no asshole rule. By that, I meant if the person was the most qualified on paper and they showed up really well, but you knew that they just had an edge and they would twist the company culture, we probably don't want to hire them. So I think this whole notion that you threw out there about clan, I think it's so important for families. And I think if your kids actually get it the way you described it, they should be really proud of it. Wearing that t-shirt should be a badge of honor for them. I love that. Thank you. And listen, if you want to think I have parenting philosophies, I got management philosophies and cultural philosophies all over the place. And that is a big part of it because and much like you said, no assholes. And very famously, I think Google has a similar policy like that. But for me, it comes down to I will walk a talented asshole out the door as soon as possible, because at the end of the day, it's not just about you as an individual contributor. It's what you contribute to that larger picture in that team. And I want to hire people that not only are really are smart, right, are people that are really talented and have the skills that we need for a role. But sometimes we talk about, is this somebody you'd want to take a three or four hour car ride with, right? Is this somebody that you get along with and you could talk with? and break bread with and enjoy. And it doesn't mean you all have to be best friends, but at the end of the day, there has to be commonality. And that's why our company in particular, we really hone in on behavioral attributes. We hire a lot of people early in their career. So it's a little bit easier to do that sometimes because you can train some of that aptitude, but we never forsake attitude. And that's one of the biggest things that we do. So there's a lot of alignment here from a cultural perspective. So I'm so interested to hear about Village MD. I want to read something to you because I know this has to be a big part of the culture. And it sounds like you're starting out with what they call in the industry a BHAG, right? A big, hairy, audacious goal. And so I found this founding principle on Village MD. I want to read it to you. And I want to talk about why this was important to you. Our company has a bold founding principle, changing primary care in the United States so that our country can be the global leader in health outcomes, regardless of background and income. Today in the U.S., we spend nearly $4 trillion on healthcare, the most of any country, but globally, our health outcomes rank last among developed countries. I would not say that we have a great perception as a country in terms of our healthcare system and the way it works and how it's so differentiated between people of the haves and the have-nots. Why was this important to you, and what is Village MD doing to kind of contribute positively to changing this around? First and foremost, and just to give you a little framework for the springboard to Village MD, I spent the first 32 years of my career working for health plans. 
the last health plan that I worked for was Anthem, so a publicly traded company. Yep. And I always had this idea in my head that if I got to a bigger plan at a higher level, I would be able to impact care delivery because ultimately we were the financiers of care. And so therefore people would listen to us. And in the end, I'm ashamed to admit that I was mistaken. It doesn't work that way. And it was a hard lesson and a long lesson for me to learn. What really matters is what goes on between the patient and the physician in the exam room. Most people go to their doctor because there's something wrong. They're not feeling well, right? Every once in a while, people go in, call it an annual checkup. They go in to make sure that the engine's running okay. But outside of that, most people are there. And when they're there, they're usually scared. They're concerned. What they're looking for is a little bit of compassion. They want somebody that's a good listener. I interview a lot of patients as part of my role in the company. And I'll often ask them the question, why did you choose to come to this village medical clinic? You were new to the area. You didn't know this doctor. And yet you chose to come to village medical. Why did you do that? This one woman in particular said to me, I was sitting around the pool at the condominium where I live. And everybody was raving about the doctor in your village medical clinic. And for my own satisfaction, edification, I had to go check it out. And as I was talking to her, I said, how long have you been a patient here? And she said, about six, seven, eight months. How long have you lived here? About six, seven, eight months. And so to me, if you're creating that type of an experience for people, I don't even think of them as patients, just people. What do people want? Back to our kid conversation. Just be honest with people. Be respectful to people. They'll be respectful to you. Create an environment where people can actually feel comfortable in going and frankly, bearing their soul, their warts, what's wrong with them, with their clinician and do it in a safe, comfortable environment. So we started with primary care. And the reason that we did is because I think few things motivated us. Primary care doctors, by definition, are not economically motivated. If they were, they'd have been an anesthesiologist or an orthopedic surgeon, or they would have done something like that. They chose the profession and in fairness, pays the least amongst the profession of physicians. So if you have that as the starting point and they are in a position to take care of a person's whole health, if you can enable them to do their job and do it in a way that creates a bond with the patient that is job satisfying for them, then we overcomplicate it. We talk about health outcomes and we talk about quality and we talk about lowering the cost of care. All those things are important. But if you only did those things and the patients hated going to see their doctor, did we really win? And I think the answer is no. So to me, it starts with the relationship between the patient and the physician. If we get that right, then the rest will take care of itself. There's a great book by the CEO at the time of Southwest Airlines. Herb Keller is his name. Yep. And one of his lieutenants was invited by the country of Brazil to go start the Brazilian airline. At this point in time, Brazil did not have a national airline. And he wanted the job, but he didn't have the courage and had to work up the courage to finally tell Keller that he wanted to leave and go start the airline for Brazil. And so he did, and Keller was delighted for him and said, "You, of course you should do it. And the guy said to him, do you have any advice for me? And he said, yeah, take care of the crew. The crew takes care of the passengers and the passengers will take care of our shareholders. In my world, take care of the physician. The physician will take care of the patients and the patients will take care of our shareholders. So if you get that right and you start with primary care, I think everything else can fall into place quite easily. In this country, we think of it as a badge of honor to say, well, my cardiologist or my oncologist or my ophthalmologist, forget all the ologists. I want a good old fashioned pediatrician for my kids, primary care doctor for me. Doc, I got this pain in my abdomen. I don't know what's going on. I'm 63 years old. You know, the car's a little rusty. What do you think? I just want to have that kind of relationship with my guy. 
I love that. And so listen, I got to tell you up on the board over here, we have order of importance and it says colleagues, candidates, clients, community suppliers. I totally agree with you. And I think Richard Branson has said something similar. I think most great CEOs and leaders believe this. If you take care of your employees first and foremost, they will take care of your customers and you will be known like Southwest is for excellent customer service. And so it's a really easy equation to get in mind. You have the customer focus in terms of the patience that a founder would have. You have the belief in culture and the importance of like a founder would have. I'm interested as the role as chief growth officer, chief strategy officer, how much does culture and people play into your world on a day-to-day basis? It plays into my world every single day, everywhere I go. I was the guy, frankly, especially early stages of the company. It would be my job to go to Murray, Kentucky and meet with Dr. Bob Hughes, who was sent my way by an Anthem colleague. I didn't know Dr. Hughes. And so he called me. And out of the blue, and I took his call and I was driving my kid to YMCA camp in Brookton, Indiana. And it's about a three hour slog down and back. I talked to him the whole way down and the whole way back. And then he came up to visit. We had to make a decision that we liked each other. We thought we could work together with each other, that the business model would make sense. But in the end, we needed a physician leader. And when we looked at the attributes of Dr. Hughes in Murray, Kentucky, or Tom Selznick in Southeast Michigan, or a great physician that I'm very, very fond of, and he's an executive now in our company, Dr. David Hatfield. David is in Phoenix. And when we met the Hatfield Medical Group, I was really excited about them. They were a really large group in Phoenix. And then I went to David's clinic and I saw the culture of Hatfield Medical Clinic started by his father in 1960. And I thought, there's a legacy here. Man, if we could get them to be part of us. And so everywhere I would go, what I was looking for was, as you described it, this tribal connection. Could these be our kind of people? Could they be a leader in Southeast Michigan? Could they be a fill in the blank? That's what we went out and found. We found people that wanted to be part of a movement. And it is so interesting. In the acquisition with Hatfield Medical Group, they were a large clinic and they had, I think, 10 locations, 30 plus providers, and they had some investors. This was during the pandemic. And so they came to visit us in our office in Chicago. And we were sitting about 10 feet apart from each other around this big U-shaped table. And one of the investor guys said, so let me see if I get this right. You guys are on this journey and you're going to acquire Hatfield Medical Group. You guys are going to flip the company and you're going to make a pile of money and you're going to ride off into the sunset. Is that what's going on here? And I said, yeah, actually, that's not really our plan. And the guy said to me, so where do you think you're going to be in 10 years? And I said, we're going to be 10 years further along on a hundred year journey. And I mean that because healthcare is screwed up in our country and it took a long time to screw it up. We're not getting out of here next weekend. We're going to be here for a while. And so those are the tenants, the pillars that make our company what it is. If you don't have that leadership, if you don't have that esprit de corps, if you don't have people that want to go on this journey, this company is going to be around long after me and Clive and Tim go do something else, whatever that may be. And so I want my kids to be excited about it. I want their kids to be excited about it. And hopefully Village Medical in 2075 will be plastered on the name of a building somewhere. And my great, great grandkid could say that was my great granddad that started that company. Building a legacy. And listen, we're a lot more aligned than I even realized when we first talked. Your passion and energy is palpable. I need to get an application for Village MD. I'm signing up. (laughs) It's funny you said what you said, because I always say that as an entrepreneur, you're either a mercenary or a missionary. And I am most definitely a missionary. And when people talk to me and ask me, what are your financial goals? Or where do you see MSH in 10 years? Or what are you trying to do? 
I said, well, I don't really have financial goals. I have impact goals. I have things that I want to do to make sure that we're being effective and we're reaching as many companies and people as possible. Money is a byproduct of doing something amazing well and building a legacy and building something lasting. And I think people raise their eyebrow at me because that's not the typical answer you get for an entrepreneur, but that's how you build something sustainable. And listen, you couldn't be doing it in a more important space in a place that needs more reform. I mean, I think hiring needs complete reformation, but healthcare certainly is even higher on that list. So a big time kudos to you. And I love the approach and I believe it hundred percent because I live it day to day myself. And this is the type of people that make the impacts that really change the world in a very positive way. So kudos to you on that. Well, I want to share a story with you on this very topic. So I'm working for Anthem and the sales team. Anthem got this account, Motorola Mobility, which ended up getting acquired by Google. Yep. So we have an audience with Google and they're chomping at the bit to want to, Google had never been out to bid. They had only worked with Kaiser and whoever all else they were working with. And so this was their time. I went out and I met with them, with the sales team. And in a conversation just like this, I said to the head of U.S. benefits for them, so you live here in Northern California. She said, well, actually, I'm from Seattle. I used to work for Weyerhaeuser, the paper company. And then I was called by Google. And so I just got myself a condo here at my family. We still live up in Seattle. And I said, tell me a little bit about that. So you have a house up there. Tell me about your assets. What are your assets? And she kind of looked at me a little bit quizzically. And she said, well, we have a house. And then I have this condo here, but I don't own the condo. I just rent it. My husband and I, you know, we kind of live on the Puget Sound and we like to boat. So we have a small boat that we go out with our kids on sometimes. And, you know, we have a couple of cars and we have some savings. And I said, I was just curious, how come when I asked you what your assets were, you never said the enjoyment of good health? And I'm curious, do you think Googlers, because that's what they're called, they're not called employees, they're Googlers. Do you think the Googlers value their health? And she said, I don't know, but I don't really think so. And I said, until people view good health as maybe the most significant asset that they have, it's going to be really hard to change the culture of your health experience within Google as an organization. And then we went on this journey together and I became the executive sponsor of Google to help them think about a different way to think about healthcare. And I think that's true for all people. If you don't view your health as an asset, then what do you have left? The things that are in short supply are time in your health. Notice in our mission statements, we don't talk about we want to be the most profitable healthcare company on the planet. We want to drive the best health outcome. That's what we're interested in. I love that. And I'll give you a similar story. I said Easter, I had my family around the table and we were all saying something we were thankful for. And I said, the one rule is you can't copy the something to some of the person. So before he said, how are my kids going? My wife going, I went last. And I said, I am grateful for our health, our relative health, because without that, the material possessions, the love, the different things, those all become very secondary if you can't focus on your health. So we're very, very grateful to have our health. And I was trying to make that resonate with my kids because that's something that a lot of times we have some control over, but we don't have total control of that, right? And that's something that can flip your life in an instant. And so you are dealing with people at the most urgent of their times, the most scared, the most anxious of their times. And that physician care, that belief, that mission, it's so, so important that's genuine because you know what? that permeates the people that work for your organization. And that ultimately permeates the patients and the care that they get. Really, really important. I love that. We're both yeah. pretty big readers. We read the book Grit. It resonated with both of us. So we're going to talk a little bit about what you look for in hiring. I know Grit is a part yeah. of that. You have a great story on somebody that you hired around their grittiness, but I'm interested in your grit. I know that you have it. Can you think of a time where your grit led to you to be successful in something that maybe someone else wouldn't have been? I know it's an important quality. I'm interested in how that's played out throughout your life. So I 
was a kid that grew up in a small town in Connecticut. And I suppose maybe like a lot of kids back in those days, I had this idea that maybe I'll go to college. Maybe I won't go to college. If I was going to go, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. And so I was 16 years old and my parents encouraged me that, you know, you need to go get a job. And so Paul and Sarah Appel lived across the street from us. And so I knocked on their door and they owned Appel Drugstore in town. And so I knocked on their door and said, Mr. Appel, I would be honored if I could get a job working for your pharmacy. And he said, well, you'll have to come in and fill out an application, which I did. And then I went through an interview, which was not with him. <laughs> it was with everybody else. And ultimately I got a job and I thought, well, lucky me, I'm going to be a pharmacist. Well, they had a different idea. It was the summer of 1976 or something like that. And they gave me a can of paint and a paintbrush and said, see that guardrail out in the parking lot? That thing needs a new coat of paint. And so ultimately I got the job. I did my best. It was ready. I went out there and I painted that fence in the heat of the summer. And then I decided I was going to become a pharmacist. I enrolled in the University of Connecticut School of Pharmacy. That didn't go so well in the first semester because chemistry and biology and all that kind of stuff, that was not my wheelhouse. Yep. So I lasted there for a semester. Then I joined the School of Business and I lasted there two semesters because it was a series of multiple choice tests where most kids got the test from some other kid and cheated on it. And so I could do that too. And then I decided I wanted to be a philosophy major. Ooh. And so I ended up getting a degree from the University of Connecticut in philosophy. And my dad was a little less than thrilled by this because he said, what are you going to do with a degree in philosophy in 1982 when I graduated? And back then, interest rates were like 18%. Unemployment was 12. And a degree in philosophy exiting UConn did not look like a highly marketable background. So, of course, I said to him, I think I'm going to join the Peace Corps and run a fish hatchery in Nepal. And he said, that doesn't pay real well. You might get a real job. And so I ended up getting a job working for Cigna Corporation, as we know it today, Connecticut yep. General Life Insurance Company back in the day. And through that 32 years, sort of being in the industry, I was fortunate enough through grit. I was not the best student. I was not the brightest kid that there was, but I did read a lot. To your point, I loved reading. And I actually felt that reading taught you a lot of things. I think that the multiple choice tests were just memory. All you had to do is memorize. But taking an action philosophy class, hiking, hiking the White Mountains in Vermont with an ice axe and crampons, and then writing about the experience, that teaches you a lot about yourself. And I think the sooner that you figure out who you are and what you're about, the easier your life is going to be. I also think the sooner that you figure out you're alone, the easier your life is going to be. So if you get those things right, your grit will shine through. Think about this. I'm a senior vice president at Anthem. Life is pretty good when you have one of those jobs at a company with 50, 60,000 employees and you're one of the top 25 or 30 people in the company. Generally, the advice is shut your mouth and just keep doing what you're doing. I didn't do that. I resigned and left the company in 2013 with no job, no income to start Village MD with Tim and Clive because they believed what I believed, which was we owe it to the healthcare system to do a better job. And that's what we did. We didn't take an income for the first two years of the company, not until we raised Series A. And that was in 2015. We started the company April of 2013. I'm divorced. I got kids. I got a big job. And I chuck all that away and say, I'm going for it. And so to finish the story, 
as we got everything going and we had this yellow line piece of paper with the cap table. And I go down to Houston to meet with Clive lives in Houston. Tim lives in Chicago. Tim and I fly down and we spend a day with Clive in his conference room working on our pitch deck. And eventually it got to be kind of late at night. And I said, guys, I go to bed early. I'm kind of hungry. We should get a hotel room and get something to eat. And Clive says, hotel room, you're staying with me. And by the way, Margie's got food for us. So don't worry about that. Like, okay. All right. So we go to Clive's house and his three kids are there. I hadn't met them. I had met his wife, of course, and she had food for us. We sat down, had ourselves a little bit dinner. It was like 930. I said, okay, I got to go to bed. So he said, follow me going upstairs. Tim, you have the guest room. Paul, you're going to be in Joseph's room. I said, well, where's Joseph going to go? He'll sleep on the couch downstairs. So I call my wife and she said, where are you? And I said, I'm at Clive's house. Where were you all day? So we were working on the business plan. And so you're at Clive's house now? And I said, we are. What are you doing there? I'm going to sleep here. I said, I am sitting on the foot of the Joseph's twin bed, looking at Joseph in the amazing Technicolor dream coat bedspread. And here's where I'm going to lay down tonight. And she said, honey, are you sure this was a good idea? And so that was 2013. And here we are a decade later. It was a great idea. I love it. And see, here's the thing. When we think about entrepreneurs and we think about their story, we always get rich quick or overnight success story. It's never like that. My first two years did not take a salary. I was barely able to afford 99 cent cheesy cheeseburgers at Wendy's every lunch. And that's not the best for your health. And you had to fight through all of that to eventually get to where you go. But people don't talk about those stories as much. It's that grit. It's probably the number one quality of an entrepreneur and any leader that's going to be something of any type of impact. So I love that. Love that. Love that. I'm going to remember that one for sure. Let's get into the hiring. So I want to learn a little bit about how you helped grow this company to its size. Can I ask Village MD, how many employees do you have total? Well, today we have over 20,000 employees. My goodness. Yeah. That is a lot. Okay. So let's talk about this. You've obviously been involved in hundreds, if not thousands of hiring processes throughout your career. Let's start here. Hiring philosophy. What's the number one thing you're thinking when you bring somebody in your organization, behavioral traits, qualities, approach? Tell me what that philosophy is. Interestingly, what I look for is how they show up. And I'm not talking about, are they wearing a suit coat? Are they, did they take the interview seriously? I want to understand who's sitting across the Zoom or the desk or whatever it is from me. I want to know who they are as a person. And so I'll share two stories with you about two very, very early on hires in the company. The first one is our executive admin, Tina. So we started the company in 13 and by March, April of 2014, we were getting a fair amount of interest in after trying to manage my own schedule and manage my own calendar and book my own travel and all that kind of stuff. I thought there's a better use of my time and we should get an admin. So one day I came into the office and I said to Tim, I think I've got a person to be our admin. You know, we're going to have to share one because we don't have the money to get one for everybody. And so there's a woman that works at a restaurant in my town, Francesca's restaurant, and she's the manager of the restaurant and she is awesome. And I think she could be a great admin. And he kind of looked at me quizzically and said, does she know how to do Excel? And does she know how to do PowerPoint? And I said, I don't know, but I could tell you this, this lady got customer service skills like nobody I've ever met. When I walk into that restaurant, it's like a long lost friend, big hug. She finds a table for me. If I have a reservation, if I don't have a reservation, she's accommodating me all along the way. And he said, well, she better have some business skills and some business acumen to complement those great customers. So I met with Tina and I said, look, I want to make sure we're aligned on how this is going to work. I have a little project. I want to see how you do. I live in Chicago. So 
let's have you go find us some office space. We don't have an office. We've been hanging around in Starbucks. It's getting a little old, long in the tooth for that. Go find us some office space. Here's the parameters. 294, go east to the lake. Preferably don't go all the way to the lake. Somewhere in there, north of the airport, south of Lake Cook Road, there's a big rectangle there. Go see what you can find. So she disappears. She comes back a week later, calls me and said, I'm ready to talk about office space. Well, forget talking about office space. She came back with a PowerPoint presentation, fully done, three options. She had the cost per square foot already negotiated. What move-in date we could have, whether it came with furniture, without all I asked her to do was find a darn location. I didn't tell her to go get it done, and she did. So we hired Tina in 2014, and soon she will be celebrating her 10-year anniversary with us. Wow, that is incredible. So that's Tina. Think about it, right? Tina's done well by us, but she started out as an executive admin and she still is and she loves her job and she comes to work every day with passion and energy to do a better story. Marissa Lee joined us as an intern. Marissa Lee went to Cornell and Tim Barry, our CEO, went to Cornell. So she figured out that this guy from Cornell had started this company, Village MD, and she wanted an internship. So we hired her as an intern and we were paying her next to nothing, 10 bucks an hour. And then it came time for her to graduate. So now 2014, soon to be 2015. And so I worked with her a lot as an intern, gave her projects to help us work through various markets that we might want to get into and this kind of analytical work. So eventually I said to Marissa, we want to make you a full-time job offer. So, okay. And she said, but before you guys make me an offer, do you think it's possible that I could meet you two? So I said, yeah, and you should meet Clive too. And so Marissa, we're going to be in New York City because the company's starting to get serious and we're going to have to raise some capital. We're going to go meet with some bankers. Welsh Carson was one that we were going to go meet with, Tom Scully, if you know him. And why don't you meet us in New York City? She said, are you going to send me an airline ticket? And I said, nice try. I know there's a bus from Cornell to New York City and I realize it's five hours, but you'll do just fine on that bus. And so she took the bus down to New York City and it was one of these, listen, you're not in college. You're a strategy analyst. You're with us today. We're going to be running around New York City. You'll get a sense as to who we are, what we're trying to do, et cetera. So all that happened. Then we go make her a job offer and she turns the job offer down. So I called her back and I said, I know a lot of kids that go to Cornell, end up in New York City working for investment banks. And, you know, I don't know if that's where you're going to end up. And you don't have to tell me if you don't want to tell me. But if you could give me just a little bit of feedback, it will make us a better organization. And she said, well, my family, my parents, my mom's a physician, my dad's a business guy, and they're emigrants from China. And the other job offer that I had, which is at a big firm, offered tuition reimbursement. And Village MD does not have tuition reimbursement. And my parents are big fans of higher education. And I said, can you give me a day? I'll figure out a tuition reimbursement program. And so she said, you would do that? And I said, just give me a day. So I called my wife, who was actually helping us at the company at the time, and said, honey, we need a tuition reimbursement program. Can you call some of your friends and I'll call Anthem and I'll get a copy of what they're... So we cobbled together a tuition reimbursement program, put that back into the job offer. Marissa took the job, moved to Chicago, joined the company. Me and my wife gave her the down payment on her apartment because she needed to move lickety split and she wasn't prepared for that. And to this day, now nine years later, Marissa Lee is a vice president in the growth strategy team at Village MD reporting to me. Whoa, 
So, you know, you talk about tribal, you talk about family. I'm sitting in Phoenix, Arizona right now. We're working on a strategic partnership with Cigna. We have a meeting with Honor Health this afternoon. Marissa flew in this morning and she's on her way to my house here today because the dynamic duo is back in action and we're going to go see what we can do. This episode is brought to you by MSH. MSH is an innovative professional services and SaaS organization serving customers ranging from startups to the Fortune 100. A truly global company operating in more than 35 markets across three different continents, MSH partners with their customers to build the teams that solve their biggest and most complex business challenges. Find out more at talentmsh.com. You're in my hometown, so if you need any recommendations of where to eat in Phoenix, I'll let you know after the pod. Okay, second off, let's talk about candidate experience here. So first, she's got to take the bus. So that's not great. I can't say that's great, but I, I like it. You're transparent. You let her know what the deal is. It's the, where your company's at at the time. But then she got to run around New York and see the founders in action in one of the most, I got to imagine, stressful and important moments in the formative years of the company and gets to see that firsthand. And so I totally get why the tuition reimbursement was important. I'm really impressed that you put it together. That is a really unique, realistic job preview. And look how much that's paid off. That tuition reimbursement, whatever that amount of money was, has paid off tenfold for you and that you have a VP that you can count on and is able to run side by side with you. I love that story. I love stories like that. I was going to say, do you have a most memorable interview? But is that the most memorable interview you've had? They're all memorable for me. Molly Lynch, who you've had an opportunity to meet. Marissa Lee, Tina, physicians, David Hatfield. I remember sitting in David Hatfield's conference room and saying, we want to acquire your clinic not because it's a 30 provider, eight, 10 location clinic. We want to do this because of you. You're going places in healthcare. You just haven't divined the path for you yet. David Hatfield is now the president of Village Medical, overseeing thousands of clinicians. If you meet him, he's this ball of energy. The minute you meet him and shake his hand, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. He was a college athlete. He's Mormon, so he's very religious. He believes in tithing. He believes in giving back. He believes in his children. He has like 10 grandkids and he's 54 years old. There's so many stories like that. So, so many. I got to ask this as a follow-up then, because I asked this of all our guests, and this is an interesting one for me now, because you seem to go off a lot of my sense of this person, my gut intuition on this person, who they are. When you miss on somebody, because I got to imagine 20,000 employees, you missed on some, right? Is there a theme that you can look back on and say, I wish I would have done this differently, or I wish I would have dug in here more? Is there anything you can think of in that scenario? There have been a couple of people where I felt a little desperate, like we really needed a role filled, and I pulled the trigger too quick. The passion that you just heard and all those people that I just described, there have been a few times where the person was okay. Don't get me wrong. There wasn't something that was sticking out saying, yeah, that's not going to work, or they don't really understand that, or they don't have the experience that they alleged to. Just in my gut, I just didn't feel that same, this person will run through a brick wall. This gets back to grit. Is David or Tina or Marissa, or was Marissa the valedictorian in her class? Probably not. If I called Marissa Lee this Saturday morning, she's nursing a five or six month old baby. If I called her 7.30 Saturday morning, she would A, answer the phone and B, she would say, hey, what's going on? And if I said, I need some slides for the board meeting next Thursday, I've got a framework and I need you to polish them up. Can you help me with that? Sure. When do you need them? Yeah. Foxhole people. That's it. And here's the thing. I think you said something very prescient, right? I think when I see people make the worst hiring decisions, it's when a role has been open for a long time or you're losing money because the role is not filled or it's a critical role. And then you start to rationalize, right? Now it's not necessarily this is the perfect person for the role. We've got to move now. It's 
I can kind of see this working out and I have to fill in a few of the blanks, but I can see it. And that's when we typically make a mistake because in our mind, sometimes you get to that point of like, well, the job being open is worse than the not having the right person for it. And then you stretch sometimes. And so sometimes you'll make concessions there. And those are actually the ones that I probably made the worst decision of that. Or if I did not have the role defined for what the company was going to be versus what it is right now, that's where I've made some mistakes too. Yeah, totally agree with that. To me, the most expensive part of running a company is turnover. Mm-hmm. And if you mitigate turnover by having people like Marissa and Tina and Dr. Hatfield and Dr. Selznick that are long-termers, pick the person since the get-go or when I first met him, you know, four or five years later, if you can have that kind of continuity of people and resources, you know, it's interesting because Tina, as an example, has had people knocking on her door because there's this perception that we've got this little secret sauce and this special thing going on and people have knocked on Tina's door and I'm sure that she's been attracted by all that, but her loyalty wins out all the time. And I've said to Tim, your life, Tim, and my life will be a train wreck the day Tina walks out the door because there is not one person that you or I talk to that she does not know who the person is and the relative importance of them communicating and getting on the phone with you or me or whatever it might be. There's so much value in mitigating turnover in building that culture of esprit de corps and loyalty. It matters a ton. I'm going to say two things that really stand out to me there. One is, can I bring you in with some of my CEO and CFO clients to talk about the bottom line impact of a tenure and attrition and engagement and the lack of that can be a really big problem. You get it and you understand it. And that's why our business is founded on that principle of finding great long-term hires, not just somebody that gets the job, somebody that is a Tina, somebody that's going to be at your organization and get promoted for a very long time. And then also, I might put my foot in my mouth here, but I've been doing this for 12 years and I know it to be the truth. My first employee still works here. My second employee still works here. My third employee still works here. The average tenure on my team is over five and a half years in our industry. That's absolutely insanity. That doesn't happen. And I've had other CFOs previously with the company, other finance people or other people in general or cynics say, you know, people are going to leave for more money. Your people are going to, you know, and I tell them, I go, I disagree. I disagree. If I have an open line of communication with them, if I've created an environment that they feel that they can speak to me and that they feel valued and that they're taken care of and then they sacrifice and give back to, I feel like you can really, especially in my role as the founder and CEO of the company, I think you can really mitigate a lot of that attrition and tenure for the most part, especially with your direct reports. And so I totally agree that Tina probably has had a bunch of calls, but you know what? You're the one that took a chance there. You've created an environment for her where she can be successful and you valued her. That's worth more than $10,000 more base. And just so it's out there, if one of my main people who've been here for over a decade came to me and said, it's a difference of $10,000, then they know what my answer to that's going to be too. So I am totally aligned with you. And it's leaders like us that I think are different than the others that say, we are tied to the circumstances and the market and the vagaries of what's going on out there. I don't care what's going on out there. My philosophy stays the same here. And thus, our people stay here. And plus, there's founding principles and there's founding bigger purpose that we have here that I know you have at Village MD too, which is also a really big part of keeping people on that mission and on that rocket ship. But think about this too. I always approach an interview. This is not, I'm the employer. This is, it's gotta be good for you too. It can't Mm -hmm. just be for me. You should get out of this discussion, whatever you need to make the most informed decision possible. Because if it's truly going to be a long-term, productive, beneficial relationship, it's got to cut both ways. And to that same point, the eight, nine, 10 years that Tina's been with us, we've had ups and downs, right? We've had our bumps in the road. You've got to have Tina. You were off your game the last couple of weeks. What's going on with you, right? You've got to have those honest conversations with people. Back to the same thing I said about my kids. Be honest with them. 
Every good relationship has that though, right? And to me, one of the fundamental things, and I'm getting passionate now too, it might be the Cuban coffee I just had, but I think the reciprocity is one of the most important aspects of the employee and employer relationship. This idea that there's a hammer and nail relationship where people or employees are being treated like numbers, like to me, the relationship is fundamentally broken because there's a lack of trust. And I know why. A lot of companies make decisions to lay people off because they didn't hit quarterly numbers. C-level didn't get their bonuses and things like that. And they're treated like numbers, right? Of course, an employee is going to say, I got to look out for myself because this company is not looking out for me. But when you have that mutual reciprocity and mutual benefit, right? You as an individual being successful in your career is good for the company and the company's growth, which is good for me. We share in that. And that means that sometimes we sacrifice for each other. We give back to each other. We trust and talk to each other. And that's how you have a good working relationship. So I love it. Your company is at 20,000. It's amazing what you've done in the span of 10 years. But a big part of it is because of your philosophy and your driving of this culture and the retention of your people. Because if you had turnover, like many other companies in the healthcare space do, and I know all about issues with APC shortages and all these different things that are out there. But if you had that turnover, you've always been taking a step back to take two forward. And so that makes it much tougher. Last question I'll ask you on the hiring side. Do you have a favorite question that you love to ask in terms of an interview or one that comes to mind when I ask you that? Yeah. Tell me about you. They'll describe characteristics or things that they've done, right? I was the architect designer for McDonald's. Those are things. I want to know about you. Who are you? Why did you want to come to this interview today? What is it that you hope to gain out of the conversation with us today? I want to know who's sitting there. So for me, the opening and only question I can lead with is tell me about you. And I have to admit that sometimes that freaks people out. They just, they want to describe the things that they've done, not who they are. To me, if you start with who they are, then all that other stuff, if you get the right chemistry, if you get the right quality, then you can teach all that other stuff. I totally agree with you. I got a question though. How many people start talking about their life story versus their career journey? Because they must assume you want to hear about the career journey. How many get right down to what matters to them as a person? It's a big minority, 10%. People gravitate to what they know and it's comfortable for them. And if they start with, well, you know, I was the executive admin for Boeing and I was there for seven years. And those are just characteristics, right? No, I want to know what excited you. What was motivating to you? Tell me about your family. Where are you from? I want to get into who they are. And so you have to course correct really quick on that. But once people do, man, I got to tell you, it's like you gave them the keys to the car because they just open up. People want to tell you stuff. They don't want to describe they took a PowerPoint class seven years ago and they know how to work Excel pivot tables. Who gives a shit? Give them that freedom to just be them. You can't believe what happens. What's important to you? You want to hire the whole person. And when you hire the whole person, that means that everything that comes with that and what's important to them, what motivates them and what they care about. And then you can best put them in a position to be successful in your company. I totally agree with you. I love that. There's a woman in our company who I adore. I didn't know her. She reached out to me and saw me do a podcast like this. And it was recorded. And so she saw it and reached out to me and said, I would love a chance to meet you. I would love to talk to you. She happens to live here in Phoenix. So one time I came to Phoenix and I sat down with her. And I said to her, why did you want to talk with me? And she said, well, when I listened to the recording of your interview, I was just blown away by your comfortability and talking and just talking openly about things and people. And I said, well, so then tell me about you. And she said, I don't think you want to know. And I said, I do. And this is a woman who grew up homeless Mm. in Southern California, put herself through school, literally through primary education by hitchhiking to school every day because her family couldn't provide for her and she was homeless. She was living in a tent city. 
wow. and made it through high school and ended up getting a job with us. And so now I've been on her and have said to her, you're good enough to finish higher education, enroll in an online college. So I'm going to have coffee with her tomorrow because she did exactly that. But it was the freedom of allowing her to just tell me her story and not being embarrassed about it. Most people would be embarrassed by that story, and she wasn't. She's got a ton of grit. That's for sure. Right, that's it. It's exactly what it is. So give people that freedom. All right. Well, tell her I know her story. I'd love to hear it. Say hi for me when you meet up with her in Phoenix tomorrow. That I is will. an exceptional story. So let's talk about a couple other things before we wrap up here. I want to know a little bit about, as the chief growth officer, as the chief strategy officer, what does that mean in terms of day-to-day? Like, is it acquisitive? Is it working with investment or banking? Is it like, help us understand what somebody in that role does at your company. The best way to think about it, my encouragement for people that are early stage companies, and the market's changed a little bit, so there's a little tampering of what I'm about to say. But back when we started the company, and if you think about it, for healthcare in particular, and the companies that sort of look like us do what we do, this all happened as a result of the Affordable Care Act, which was 2010, right? And so 2010, everybody's now trying to position and figure out what's going to change. And that's what I was doing when I was working for Anthem. What does this mean to us? What does it mean around payment to the provider network? What does it mean about integrity of reimbursement? Like all this sort of stuff. And in the beginning, you get rewarded for growth. And so if that's what your investors want, and that's the profile of what we position the company, then you have to grow up. <laughs> so get out there and find your way into markets and find position leaders and understand the characteristics of the markets. And you need to go to school on those markets so that when you're in a board meeting and you're talking about Southeast Michigan and you say, well, let me describe what the characteristics of the market look like. You have to have command of your subject so they know why they bet on you. Every day, you have to remind them of why they bet on you. And the best way to do that as a high growth company is to have a command of your subject matter like no expert. And the only way to do that for me personally is get in the car and drive around Detroit, Michigan or Murray, Tennessee. If you haven't been to Murray, 34,000 people, Murray State University, College Town, we have a clinic on the campus there. You got to live it. You got to live it and you got to breathe it. So yes, it's about acquisition. Yes, it's about growing the company. It's about figuring out what the characteristics of the markets look like that make them attractive. How can we run a successful business in Murray, which looks really different than Phoenix, Arizona, which looks really different than Houston, Texas, right? So to me, the strategy part is understanding the dynamics and characteristics of a market, finding a leader in that market that you can build around and then get busy building. And so that's what it looks like. Yes, there's a lot of investment banker meetings along the way. You don't get capital if you don't get in front of bankers. And the way to get in front of bankers is to prove to them that you've got something that's different and they want in on it. Ooh, worse to live by. I love that. What are you working on right now that you are really pumped about? What gets you out of bed and you're juiced in terms of things you're working on in the organization right now? It's a combination of things that I'm working on, not just in the organization, but for the organization. So for example... I believe that women's health in this country has been underserved for a long, long time. If I think about it in the context of our own company, there's a woman who is our head of human resources, human capital, and she's had two children. She has the same benefit plan that I do at 63 years old. She's in her 30s. Her needs, her, the characteristics of her life, what's happening are different than mine. And so why is it then that our benefit plan looks the same for everybody? What are we doing to actually allow people to have the things in the benefit plan that are offered to them that are unique to their 
particular place in life and point in time in their life. And so women's health for me is one that's been enormously underserved. I think that women should have co-located primary care with obstetrics. I think that they should have co-located dermatology, gastroenterology. The number one comorbid condition postpartum is depression. And the number two is GI. They have GI problems as a result of giving birth. Well, the last time I checked, if you go to your OB, you're likely not going to see a derm. You're likely not going to see a behavioral health specialist. You're not going to see a GI. Why can't we co-locate all that and make it easier for a woman who generally makes most of the healthcare decisions in the family anyway? And so, like, I just think there's good work that can and should be done there. I'm sitting here in Phoenix and on a flight right now is a woman named Robin Burzen. Robin is a doc and she's the founder of Parsley Health. It's a woman's health company. I joined her board. I am cheering on Robin. I want to do everything and anything I can to help her, not just with her digital model, but also with her in-clinic model for women's health. And so these are the things that really, really get me excited. Yesterday, I was in San Francisco. I was with my friend, Jordan Schlain. Dr. Schlain runs a concierge medicine practice in Northern California. He's now got 28 clinicians, eight locations, and I'm meaning eight cities around the country. And he's trying to figure out, somebody offered to buy the business. He's too young. He doesn't want to sell it, but he doesn't know how to scale it and grow it from where it is today. That's what I've been doing for the last decade. Jordan, actually, they call him the doctor to the stars, got a lot of famous patients. But most importantly, Jordan, he was a commissioner for the city of San Francisco, and he got special dispensation in the summer of 2013, and he officiated the ceremony for my wife and I. I have all day for Jordan. He's a treat to be around. He's fun. This July will be my 10-year anniversary. So back to Carmel and spending a day with Jordan. I love that. And listen, the benefits thing I think is, and listen, I look at this for our company. And if you get this figured out, I want to hear about it because we've been looking at different companies that offer more self-selection benefits in general, not just health, but in general. Because if you think about it, like some people might not be as open to needing to get life insurance if they're 23 years old or their 401k might not be their priority. Maybe they want something wellness related or mental health related or whatever it may be. So this idea of like this one size fits all health benefits program and benefits program is something I'm super passionate about because I think I've got such a variance of people that work in our company have different needs, some with families, some who are single, some who have different wants and desires, right? The ability to customize that and say, hey, here's what we're offering for you as an employee, but use it how you choose. I think is something that really the benefits of the future and how that's going to work because it's really been kind of a one size fits all. And I'm also very passionate about women's health and the women's health side about it. So I love that you're taking such big steps in that direction. Yeah. Can I ask a question to you first? Please. I know this is what you do. Why were you excited about this interview? What did you want out of this? I bring a lot of energy to the table, right? I'm passionate about what I do. I love my company. I love the people I work with. People ask me, why do you like your work so much? And it's because basically I get up every day and come to work and work with people I consider friends and solve problems and make a little bit of money doing it. So for me, I believe that people should be super passionate about their work. I feel bad for people who go in and punch a clock and go nine to five. And we spend so much time here, become so much a part of our identity, whether we like it or not. It just doesn't make sense to be somewhere where you're not valued, where you're not working with other talented people that you love and respect. And so when we first started talking, A, you got as much passion, if not more than me and energy for what you do. So I love that. Great storyteller, but also you care about the things I care about. And what I didn't realize when before we started talking is our journeys are similar, very different spaces, but our journeys are very similar in terms of what we value, where we're going. I hope to have the type of success that you've already had up to this point. 
But I just really love the way that you approach things and you do it from such a people first and culture first perspective. And I think it's a very natural thing in healthcare. You don't always see it, but it's also a very natural thing in what I do in terms of helping people, helping families, changing economies by helping them find the work that they love, right? Helping them find somewhere that values them, that gets them that $30,000 raise, that gets them into a community where they have people that are more like them, that gets them to a place where they get promoted three times in two years. That is something I care about. And I think fundamentally, much like you think healthcare is broken, and you're right, it is, I think that hiring is broken and the amount of time and area and focus and resources we put on identifying the right fit for our company and also selecting the company you want to go work at, I don't think we put enough thought and effort and focus into it. So I want to evangelize this from the top of a mountain. And I guess the best way to put it, Paul, game knows game. You care about what you do. You founded a company and you're passionate about it. And so I don't meet many people like that. And so it was exciting for me to get a chance to talk to you. Yeah. Awesome answer. I love it. I can see you're exuding energy and passion right now. I love it. This is going to be a good episode. I already know it's going to be a good one. I'm going to wrap up right here. What's one nugget of advice that you didn't have early on in your career that you know now that maybe for some of our younger listeners, you would say from a career perspective? Trust your instincts. Trust your instincts. Okay. Anything to add on to that? That simple? I think it's that simple. I think if you are honest with yourself about who you are, what you are, what you want, what you value, and then you will just project that outward. You can't really see this, but I used to say this with my dad all the time. This is to the left of center. This is to the right of center. And this is the center. And I always know when I'm here. I also know when I'm over here and when I'm over here and I don't like it so well because I'm always trying to move myself back to the center. So if you follow your instincts, let them be your guide. And if you're in the center of who you are, it will serve you well. Mic drop. Jackie, I think we just got our video breakout right there. That was awesome. Paul, I appreciate you being and spending some time with us here. Looking forward to continuing to follow your journey. Thanks so much for the time. Thank you. Talk to you soon. All right, bud. Thank you for listening to Higher Learning with me, Oz Rashid. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review and be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode.